Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullick. Welcome to the Staff and Draft Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullick. That was a nice play on words there. I like what you did there. So, uh, so what are we going to be talking about today, Rachel? Gee, I wonder. Well, I mean, we're definitely going to bring up the fact that everyone torched you for pronouncing Saginaw incorrectly, but maybe we'll get to that later. How is it pronounced? It's called Saginaw. Okay. All right. I've been saying Saginaw my whole life, so... Good one. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. I mean, I still can't pronounce Nikita Kucherov properly. I think I finally... I've been saying Kucherov my whole life. There, There are a bunch of hockey things that I've just been wrong on for a while, so... Here's hoping I can get a few like decent takes in today before I mispronounce a bunch of words. That's the goal, at least. We'll see what happens. And I'm sure no one tweeted you about the fact that you mispronounced Saginaw. Okay, it's not a real city. There's what, like 50,000 people who live there? How is this the biggest deal on Twitter? My mentions were lighting up. and As were mine. <laughs> ridiculous. It's not even a real city. I'm sorry. Okay, moving on. So <laughs> now that we've got that out of the way, um, we're going to talk about draft prep so a lot of nhl teams are having their scouting meetings whether it's this week or over the next couple of weeks where they're doing their final rankings that they're going to take to the draft and there's slight adjustments that happen after the final meetings but these meetings are sort of where teams bring in all of their amateur scouts from across the world and they all kind of sit in the room and they hammer out the big master list and um it's one of those things that it's it's vitally important, especially if you aren't drafting with the first or second or third overall pick because your player might be available um, where you pick even though you had him ranked higher. So we're going to talk about how teams prep for the draft, how these lists come about, what goes into it over the course of the year, and then kind of the summation of it at the meetings. Yeah, should be a lot of fun. So is there anything you wanted to touch on first? Just because I know it's a it's a very broad topic, the draft. I wasn't sure if there was something specific we should touch on first and then get into a few more, uh, you know, debates and, and concepts when it comes to the draft. Well, I think like it's important to point out that like these scouts that are... So a lot of teams have, I would probably say, between 10 and 12 amateur scouts. So they've got a couple in Europe, maybe like three or four in Europe, and then the rest are kind of North American-based. Then you've got um, your crossover guys. So that'll be like your director, your assistant director of amateur scouting, and they'll go everywhere. Like, they'll watch guys in Russia and Europe and North America. Um, and then you've got your head scouts for the area. So, like, the U.S. will have a head scout, and he has to go all around the U.S. And then Canada will have a head scout and he's got to go all through the CHL and then Europe will have a head scout and he has to go all around Europe and Russia type thing. And these scouts, like they're tracking these players well before their draft year. Like there are scouting reports on these players when they're 15, 16, sometimes like pretty heavy in their underage draft year, especially if they're um, a really good player. So somebody like Jack Hughes would have had his scouting reports started probably two years ago. Um, so it's a lot of scouting reports and um, sort of they cover different things like skating and shooting, puck skill, defensive and offensive hockey IQ, their play on the boards, how they compete. Um, but it's just really important to get like lots of viewing so that you can have a rating and each guy has a, a good enough sample size. 
Yeah, so that's obviously the important qualitative aspects, and then I'm the the hockey nerd here, so when I'm evaluating players, I like to mix all of those attributes, you know, the skating, particularly edge work, I find is extremely important, particularly for defensemen. You look at vision, you look at, you know, puck skills, you look at skating ability, you look at shooting ability. But then I also like combining that with the numbers, because I feel like when you look at players who have high point production in a league, whether it's the OHL, whether it's like, you know, uh, the USHL, college hockey, or even overseas, an interesting thing that I've found is that when you look at players who even play in a professional league and don't produce that well, all you need to do is produce like one point every 10 games. We call it the, what is it, the 51% rule in Sweden, the, the SHL. If you play the professional Swedish hockey league in your draft year and put up 0.1 points per game, literally one point every 10 games, you have a 51% chance of becoming an NHL player. So I think that speaks to the importance of if you can just play in a professional league as a teenager, that's a great sign, the, the fact that your coaches see you as someone who's ready to move up a, as a teenager. So I'm always looking at players in Europe who are playing in a pro league at a young age, even if they're not doing too well, even if they only have, let's say, two points in 17 games. That's still a great indicator of future success. So for me, I love combining adjusted points per game, you know, adjusting for their age, looking at their five on five power play usage, seeing where their points are coming from. You know, secondary assists aren't as repeatable, so you want to have more primary points. But I like combining everything and, and then seeing where it all gets us at the end of the day. So it's not to say that I, I don't look at video, I don't look at, you know, individual attributes like skating and, and passing ability, but I find that if you look at the numbers in conjunction with those traits, you get a better overall picture of, of what the player is going to do in the future from a predictive standpoint. Yeah, and I think that um, we should definitely get into this and the fact what carries weight. So when you're sitting now, it's the end of the year, so it's it's mid-May, and memorial cups coming up but for the most part your scouts have all their viewings done um they've got all their reports compiled whether it's comments and ratings and interviews are a huge one that we'll get into um but now you're in the meeting and and you have staff who let's say work full-time for the team and they're putting together stuff all year for you what carries weight in the in these meetings right so you when you talk about a player you're talking about okay like ian said his skating so what's his edge work like what's his first three steps like um does he accelerate well does he stop and start or does he loop what are his skating habits are a huge one um his compete level is still a huge factor so does he come back on pucks or even if it's a 5-1 game um is the player still like does he play for pride is is there still an effort level being made and then you have his hockey iq and skill and those are kind of huge ones um just because the game is going away now where you need to be able to skate at a pace and therefore you need to be able to understand the game at a faster pace and so if you have a player that doesn't necessarily have the highest hockey iq that could be um potentially what makes or breaks whether or not he can play on your team but the one thing i think we should probably get into is should size still matter you know what I'm saying? And that's the interesting thing. When you look at draft research, you look at, okay, let's see what are the best indicators of future success. Height and weight have almost zero predictive value when it comes to forecasting NHL success, whereas, you know, point production is a huge one, especially when you look at primary point production. So, 
You look at someone like Jack Hughes, for example. He's five foot ten. He's 170 pounds, but he's obliterated every level he's played at, much like a guy like Patrick Kane did, much like a guy like Mitch Marner did. And as you can see, those players have had success at the NHL level as well because they're used to being the smallest player on the ice, but they have so much skill that it doesn't really matter. They have ways of avoiding the contact and still being able to make plays for themselves and their teammates. And this is why when you're talking about the compete level and you're talking about, you know, grit and tenacity, as much as those things obviously matter on top of your skill, I think if you're not prioritizing skill in 2019, I think you're making a mistake. I think when you see previous drafts of players like William Nylander and Nick Ehlers going behind someone like Jake Vertan, and I think that's a mistake. I think when you look at Nikita Kucherov slipping into the second round, I think that's a mistake. So I think we need to be prioritizing skill, skill, skill. And then afterwards, let's look at some other traits. But for me, that's what I've prioritized, number one, both for forwards and defensemen, because I feel like that's the league we live in today. So I think I think that's why you're seeing Jack Hughes and Capocacco. They're one and two, because no one else has anywhere close to the amount of skill that they have. Jack Hughes, I would argue, is the more skilled player. Capocacco is the more complete player. That's why there's a bit of a debate there. But for me, I think you need to be prioritizing skill. And size, for me, is a secondary factor. I find that it tends to overrate players more than anything. Because if you're six foot four, but your edge work is subpar, you're going to be chasing the puck a lot. You're not going to have it as much as some of the more skilled players in this league. So, And it's also, you can't. When you're six foot four playing against sixteen year olds or fifteen year olds, you can bully your way around the ice. Once you get to the NHL, you're not bullying your way around anywhere because most of the guys are stronger than you. And there's a bunch of guys who are six foot two, six foot three. There's a guy who's six foot nine. And to be quite honest, I think that we've seen a lot and it's started to change, but teams would rather take the chance on the bigger guy because he's bigger than the skill guy, and that's why you see a guy like Alex Dabrinkit fall. And I wouldn't be shocked if that's why Cole Caulfield fell in this year's draft, though I'm hoping that teams have maybe adjusted the way they think because Cole Caulfield has broken every scoring record at the U.S. program, and that's a pretty lofty program when you think of who's come out of there. But I just think that it's it's definitely a, an inefficiency when you have a player who puts up 50 goal seasons one after another and yet he's still drafted in the second round whereas if he was three and a half inches taller we're talking about him as a potential top five pick and that's I'm thinking of someone like Lawson Krause in the past that's someone who bullied his way around the ice in junior made it to the AHL and all of a sudden wasn't able to bully around adults you know and if your game doesn't translate that's an issue the, the concern in the past has been if you're small and, you know, you're just dominating on the power play in junior, how are you going to make it at the next level? It was uh, Corey Locke's a guy who comes up in the past, you know, someone who had the skill, but his skating wasn't quite there. That was the concern with Debrinket at the time was that, you know, he was obviously an excellent shooter, but he was playing with some elite talent. His skating stride wasn't where you'd like it to be for a dude who's five foot seven, but... I think we're starting to realize that, you know, in the past it was like, ooh, you, you can you can play if you're five foot ten, if you're five foot eleven, but if you're five eight or five nine, ooh, I'm not sure. And, and with Alex Debrinkat, we weren't sure if a guy was five foot seven and had the skill and had the shooting ability, maybe not the skating stride, could he make it? I think Alex Debrinkat's proven that, yeah, you can make it. You don't even need to be the fastest skater on the ice if you have that kind of shooting ability. So Cole Caulfield, five foot seven, hundred and sixty-two pounds. 
basically scored a goal every other game this year in the for the national uh, development squad in the U.S. There, so if you're scoring at that rate around your peers, you know, players who are supposed to be drafted in the same draft as you, I feel like you're doing something to overcome your size. So for me, I care so much about your production, whether it's in junior or whether it's in a European league or wherever you're playing. I care so much about your production relative to your peers that I tend to focus on that much more than any size concerns at the end of the day. At least that's how I tend to go about evaluating prospects. That's why I've always been much higher on guys like Alex Debrinkat or Sam Girard at the time. Like I had Sam Girard with a, with a top 15 grade, I think, and he went in the second round. Uh, Eric Brandstrom, I remember I had him in my top 10, and a lot of people didn't even have him with a first-round grade, but I just I tend to value skill and speed over everything else. And if you're 5'9", and you have those top 10 quality traits... I tend to put you in my top 10 because I think that's what matters at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think even it's not even just size that gets overrated. Performances at international tournaments, I can't even tell you. It's like everyone becomes an expert on prospects during the World Junior Tournament and during U18s. It's unbelievable the things that I see. And so if guys are good at international tournaments, let's face it, all the scouts are at international tournaments. I guarantee you if I had somebody email me a list of who was at U18s, all the big scouts are there, but they're not there all throughout the year. Like, you're not watching that closely all throughout the year. I mean, it's impossible to be in, like, ten different places at once, right? Of course, but I'm saying, like, okay, you know that all the good players at this tournament. Well, okay, so if you if you are good at that tournament, the scouts will see that, and you could be having a relatively down year, but if you're good at the international tournament, then... A bunch of scouts who generally aren't there are there for those tournaments and they'll have you rated higher. Whereas if you performed well during the year, which is a larger sample size, and you're just poor at one U18 tournament, maybe because you're hurt or um, your coach is putting you in a different position, then the ranking drops. Because I know of, like, let's say area scouts who generally scout in either Canada or the U.S., and they'll go over to Europe for the U18s. So that'll be the only time that they'll see these players. And if you perform really well or really poorly, that could really affect how they rate you, and that's when you have your argument. So I think that we need to be careful about ranking players strictly based off international play, and that's where you get into the what should carry more weight with um, things like the goal scoring and scoring chances and just some of the different numbers because... I mean, if I were to look at who is good in an international tournament, I can guarantee you that there are some players who performed well at U18s in a number of years that didn't pan out to be anything. And that's the hard part, because on a per-game basis, the U18s really matter. You know what I mean? Like, one game in the U18s, to me, matters much more than one game in the OHL, you know, or one game in the Swedish Junior League. Absolutely. But at the same time, five or six games isn't enough of a sample to get a good read on a player. You know, you need a much bigger sample size. Maybe they have a really low shooting percentage, you know. Maybe they are generating a few chances and then the pucks don't go in. Maybe they have a, an off game. Maybe they're sick for two weeks, you know. Like, there, there are a bunch of things that can impact a player's performance in a small sample. And that's why you don't want to rely on a small sample when you're evaluating a player. You want to look at their larger body of work and seeing what they're doing. And that's why you want to get out to as many games as you can. And that's why you have, want to have, you know, a big scouting staff, both in North America and in Europe. And 
one player comes to mind when you bring up uh, kind of overrating a player in a small sample. I'm thinking of someone like Philip Broberg early in the tournament this year. I forget which one it was. Was it the Halinka? I forget which tournament it was, but he just absolutely blew up at this tournament and moved into it was every- the Halinka. Yeah. yeah, and he moved into everyone's top ten, some people's top five. But when you looked at his tools, he was an excellent north-south skater. But his edge work left a lot to be desired. His playing his own end left a lot to be desired. He wasn't the greatest breakout passer. And for me, that's not a player who you should be ranking that high. This isn't to say that he's not a first-round talent. I think he is. But I think he should go much later in the first round than he's been uh, graded as. And I think a lot of that is a bit of recency bias from, from, or maybe not even recency bias, primacy bias, you know, from early in the year. Scouts kind of made up their mind on him, said, wow, this guy dominated the Halenka when I saw him. So this is a top 10 prospect. For me, I think if you're looking at his tools, the edge work isn't there. The passing ability isn't there. And then if you look at his play in the Osvenskin this year, it was all right. It was solid for a, for a 17, 18-year-old, but not someone you'd expect to go in the top 10 or top 15 of a draft. So I think you need to be careful with overvaluing a small sample, especially in these international tournaments, because we have a lot of, a lot of evidence that shows that it matters much more what you do in your full season, whether it's a 40 to 60 game season, depending on what league you play in versus a six or seven game sample in an, in an international tournament. That just makes sense when you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the one other thing that tends to get potentially overvalued is the interview process. So like teams have, at the scouting combine, you interview players, but throughout the season, you can also just request to interview a player um, after the game, and you basically just sit down and you can ask them your run-of-the-mill questions, and you're basically trying to find out what you can about the player, and I think that that tends to get overvalued. For me, if I want to find out who this player is, I'm not interviewing the player. I'm going and I'm asking his coaches. I'm going and asking his trainers. I want to know who has played with them. So one of the things that um, some teams will do at the Combine is they'll say, if you were to pick one player to be your teammate, who would you pick? And they'll say X, Y, Z. And if the uh, player continues to come up, well, that's a good sign because it means that other people that are his teammates, his peers, value him. Whereas if I go to a player... And now with their agents, they're so, so prepared and it's just cookie cutter answers to cookie cutter questions most of the time. I'm probably more apt to put value on what his coach says or what somebody like a trainer would say because they're around that player all the time and they see what that player is like behind closed doors. You're probably more apt to get a better look at what this person is like and what type of individual you could potentially be bringing into your dressing room having said that you're not going to take one opinion or one interview and make that the make or break right and I think that that tends to get done a lot right how many times have you heard oh this player did one thing and now he's shunned type thing you know what I mean yeah, it's tough. And then you hear a lot of whispers about a player and typically where there's smoke, there's fire. But again, you want to make sure that you do your due diligence to make sure that you're not making a mistake. You don't want to pass on a potential all-star player because of something that turned out to not be that big of a deal. So again, you really got to do your homework in that department. But that's something you know much more about than I do. It's always tricky for me on the outside looking in because I'll see a player like Ryan Merkley, for example, who I love his tools, I love his ability, but then I hear about some off-ice concerns that I don't know, I can't verify with 100% accuracy, so it's tough for me to know how much weight to put on on-ice performance versus off-ice concerns. 
Right, and there's some players who do have legitimate off-ice concerns, but like I said, if when I'm interviewing a player, you have you should probably be a little leery of your impression of that player and whether or not they go on your do not draft list type of thing just based on your interview with that player. Now, if you're talking to five teammates and one assistant coach and the GM and a former minor hockey coach and they all say the same thing, then I'm probably going to have some some concern, but to write off a player based on his interview or just on one person's opinion, I don't think is is a good way to go about doing things. And I mean, how often is a is a player's coach or GM going to throw them under the bus? Because I feel like it helps the coach, it helps the GM if their player gets drafted higher and succeeds. So You would be surprised. So in the media, they would never do that. But a lot of these um, junior coaches or European coaches have relationships with these scouts because, let's face it, a lot of these scouts are former NHLers. Um, and so there's like this mutual kind of respect that okay what gets what you tell me or what gets said um is not kind of going to be used for public it's just so that we can do our due diligence and I've I know about coaches who have been very blunt about certain players and even the opposite way like there are coaches who will bluntly say this is one of the best players I've coached for reasons xyz and I know of a junior coach that said this is probably the worst attitude I've ever had to deal with as a coach. It's very blunt, right? Because they don't want to be seen as a coach who can't be trusted with an NHL team. Because at the end of the day, these coaches are trying to move up too, right? That's a very good point. So if we could just shift gears a, hit a bit here, I have an interesting question because I tend to get into this debate a lot when it comes to players who might have uh, elite tools. You know, you watch them on tape and you go, wow, this guy's incredible. And then you look at his box score numbers at the end of the year, and they're not that impressive. I think of someone like Casey Middlestat in the past. This year, Vasily Podkolzin is probably the best example of someone who you watch him skate with the puck, and you go, oh my god, this guy's a zone entry machine. This guy can just carry the puck from the D zone to the O zone, make plays. I love his talent. Then you look at his point production, and he barely produced in a Russian junior league. And you're thinking, ugh, that's not very good. And then the opposite is someone like Arthur Kaliev, who isn't the greatest skater in the world. He's, you know, looks kind of lazy out there. But then you look at his point production, dude puts up like almost a point and a half per game in the OHL. That's basically top five quality point production. Yet he's closer to the, the 20s on a lot of people's lists. So what do you do when the numbers and the quote unquote eye test don't really match up on a player? How do you how do you help sort out that difference? I think for me, um, that's when it's important to have all the tools. Like I said, scouting is information. Statistics are information. Interviews, it's all information, and it's how you use it and how you value it. So I think you bring up a great example with Pod Colson and with Kaliev. So um, from my perspective, um, what I would do with both those players, um, and we'll start with Kaliev. Um, I'd be going to Dave Matzos, who's the head coach in Hamilton, and I'd be asking him, okay, as a coach, what do you like and what do you not like? What are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? What's he like behind the scenes? What Are red, are there any red flags? If so, what are they? Um, what's his family like? Because a lot of times, if I can get an idea of where you come from, I can get an idea of where you're going. Because you can get a lot from a mindset and I know what a lot of teams will do is when they interview the player, 
they will send out um, sort of like a a mental test um, that the player fills out on their computer type of thing, and it it spits the results back to the organizations. And I know a lot of teams do this and it allows the teams to get an idea of the player's mental makeup just based on how they answered the questions. Aren't they just going to answer with what they think they should answer with though? No, no, no. It's not that type of question. It's like a, have you ever done the gifted test? Uh, probably not. Cause I'm not gifted. Okay. It's like, <laughs> okay. It's, it's like one of those things where, um, it's almost like writing the LSAT. Like it's a logic reasoning. It kind of tries to see how you think and how you, look at things so are you a positive thinker are you pessimistic and I took one of the tests I've actually taken a couple of them just to sort of get a feel for what these players are going through and there's no cookie cutter answers because you're basically selecting different things right so I think I would look at that that and those results um I'd want to talk to the player like I said I'd want to talk to the coaching staff I'd want to talk to trainers, teammates, like we talked about earlier, because if it doesn't match, there's got to be a reason that one player is, let's say, ranked lower, one player is ranked higher. And then once you have all that information, then you can look at it and say, okay, what do we really value? Are we going to take a chance on this low point producer because maybe he wasn't played in all situations because of a, a coaching thing or was he in a bad situation? But we really like everything else that he brings to his game. We like the little things. Or are we not going to take a chance on this player who scored a point and a half per game because maybe um, a lot of his teammates didn't have very good things to say? And I'm not saying that this is the case with either. It almost always comes down to a skating stride, I feel like, with those players, you know? Like, I'm thinking Jason Robertson in years past, Arthur Kelly of this year. Yeah, but I'm I'm purely saying, like, okay, when you try and figure out why Pod Colson wasn't getting points, why Kaliev was, and why they're ranked where they are, that's where I really think that you need to go and put some value in the off-ice testing and the interview process and talking to as many people as possible. I know teams that go seek out these players' peewee coaches to figure <laughs> out what this kid was like. Like, that's the extent that team, some teams are going to now. They're going to find players and people that they dealt with in grade school. I know people who interviewed high school principals to figure out like what this person is like. So you can get a lot from what a kid is like when he's at the school for 40 hours a week. So maybe that's something that you look at. And um, I just think you need to use all of the information. It would be utterly ridiculous to have this information at your fingertips and not use it. Yeah, and it's funny. That's always like the big thing that I'm never aware of here. I don't know which players are super committed to improving and which players are maybe a little bit lazier and aren't going to put in the effort to truly improve their the weaknesses in their game. So, for example, if you look at someone like John Tavares or Leon Dreisaitl, they weren't the best skaters coming out of junior. They had everything else, but their skating stride was below average for their age level. And they improved it to the point where it's still not a strength in their game, but they skate at an NHL level. With Arthur Kaliev, I think that's the biggest issue, is that he's obviously going to score goals in the power play. You know, he's a point producer. He's a great passer in the offensive zone. Kind of reminds me of Thomas Vanek. But is he going to be able to improve his skating stride to the point where he can be an effective NHL player? That's yet to be seen. So I think that's, that's, that's going to be the question at the end of the day. And that if a team thinks the answer to that question is yes, they're going to draft him a lot higher. If the team thinks the answer to that question is no, he's probably not going to be given a, a top 20 grade. So I guess that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Right. And now, I mean, I guess we should definitely get into um, the numbers like you brought up. Let's say a player's box score isn't all that great. 
but what kind of research can you do sort of behind the scenes and where can you get it? Because perhaps he's not getting goals, but maybe he's unlucky, right? So what sort of are resources where you can use other than just goals, points, and penalty minutes that can tell you maybe a little bit more about the player? Oh, see, I just sort by penalties and minutes, and that's how I do my draft rankings. So I, I don't know what to tell you here. but <laughs> That's kind of alarming, um, and you shouldn't do that for anybody listening. Just absolutely do not do that. So in all seriousness, uh, there's a great uh, site that I use called prospect-stats.com. So prospectstats.com with a little dash between the word prospect and stats. And you can get some really cool information there. Uh, some leagues you can get uh, like an expected goals or, or a scoring chance number. But honestly, something as simple as just shots per game. I feel like is a really good predictor. We've seen that if you can generate shots at a high volume at the lower levels, it's a great indicator that you're going to do it at the next level. I think uh, Svechnikov's a, a, the best example I can think of off the top of my head. When he was 16 in the USHL, he was generating shots like a madman. When he went to the OHL at age 17, generating shots like a madman. Comes to the NHL age 18, and in the second half of his season, one of the best you know shot creators in the NHL. Definitely the best on the Hurricanes. So it, the fact that you can generate shots at an elite level as a teenager tends to be a very good indicator of future success. And when you look at uh, someone like Arthur Kaliev, he's generating tons of shots at the OHL level. The pucks are also going in. But if you look at a player who is generating tons of shots and maybe the pucks aren't going in, maybe that's just a low shooting percentage, you know, maybe that's going to bounce back the next year. We've seen that in the NHL with tons of players who come off of a really low shooting percentage year, and then they bounce back to their career average. So you want to be keep an eye on which players are maybe getting a bit lucky, which players are shooting at an uncharacteristically high percentage, which uh, which skaters are, are shooting at an uncharacteristically low percentage. But for me, I look at shots, I look at scoring chances. Those tend to be the things where if you want to look beneath the surface, those things definitely matter. I wish we had access to like... You know, when you're on the ice, your Corsi 4 percentage, your shots for, shots against. But one interesting thing we do have is your goals for and your goals against. So with Ryan Merkley, he's the guy I'll bring up because in both of his seasons before being drafted, his pre-draft year and his draft year, his team's goals for percentage, his team's goal rate was much better when he was off the ice than when he was on the ice. And even though he was generating tons of points when he was on the ice at 5-on-5, five five, you know, he was the, the guy who was driving the offense. He was in the offensive zone. He had the puck all the time. His team did better without him than they did with him. And I think that's a bit of an indictment on a player. Obviously, goal metrics aren't the best measure of a player's performance just because small samples. But in the public sphere, that's all we really have. If I had more data at the OHL level and I could look at shot rates, I'd really look at whether or not my team is doing much better with a player on the ice than when he's off the ice. That's always important to me, especially for a defenseman, because I tend not to care as much about your offense as a defenseman. I care, are you driving play up the ice and making sure that we spend more time in the offensive zone than the defensive zone? You know, Someone like Jacob Slavin on Carolina is a perfect example. He doesn't generate the most points in the world, but he's doing all the little things to help advance the puck up the ice and stay in the offensive zone. You know, Excellent gap control, uh, closing guys off along the board, stick lifting them, taking the puck off them, then making a smooth breakout pass. That matters to me a whole lot more than a big slap shot from the point. So right. for, defensemen, for, for defensemen, for me, it's shot metrics. For forwards, I care. Are you generating shots? Are you generating scoring chances? 
And then I'd love to know about passing data. That's not as publicly available, but I'd love to know if you're making those passes to the slot. So Sport Logic actually has started. They started it last season. Um, and it's not in every arena yet. Just I, I know a few people at Sport Logic and I was I was kind of chatting with them about it. But they're sort of getting into tracking junior games and games overseas and um they're tracking them in the same way that they track NHL games, which is like a ridiculous amount of data points. And you get things like your breakout rates and you can do even strength power play, penalty kill, empty net. You can see who's on for what goal. You can see where their shots are coming from. Like it's it's broken down. So if you're an NHL team and you use Sport Logic for your parent club, it's coming or it's already available for your your prospects. And that's something I think you should use because you can compare directly to NHL players. Okay, if we know that this certain stat is an indicator in the NHL, let's look at whether or not a player that we're ranking maybe too high or too low has that in against his peers. And so microstats, especially something like Sport Logic, um, could be very important for teams. And obviously, like that's not public data, but if you're a team and you have access to that, I mean, you should absolutely use it. It's almost like uh, the Moneyball um, reference where it's he gets on base. Okay, well, if you're a defenseman, he breaks the puck out or he has a high zone exit percentage and and different things like that so for me resources um for team is sport logic's a huge one um but publicly like you said i like prospecting uh, prospect stats um scouting is good oh he's great yeah scouting has a bunch of really easily understandable charts um if you're looking to sort of understand what's going on mitch brown who writes for the athletic um he manually tracks games and has great viz it's very easy to understand as well he's kind of like the Corey schneider the guy who does the manual tracking at the nhl level. he's like the Corey schneider of you know draft eligible prospects yeah see i think for me um i like nhl e um and manny elk has that on corsica as well as the projected war um just because hockey's kind of going that way in terms of being able to incorporate i don't want to say saber metrics but sort of the money ball aspect of it and so things like nhl e which is sort of how do your points in a different league project to the type of points or how many points you'll get in the nhl um and then you obviously have projected war and and i've actually done a bunch of research when it comes to this because i remember i was trying to come up with my own nhl e formula and i was like well some of these seem off like for example if you looked at the nhl e from about three or four years ago it said that the Finnish Junior League was less valuable than college hockey. Uh, sorry, not the Finnish Junior The Finnish Pro League wasn't as hard of a league as college hockey. And that, to me, just seemed way off because I know that Finnish professional leagues are very tough. So I'm like, okay, let's do a bit more research here. Let's really dive into some hardcore numbers. And long story short, what I did is I looked at every player who had ever moved from one league to another. So I looked at one player who went from... The Finnish Junior League to the Finnish Pro League, and then from the Finnish Pro League to the AHL, or from the Finnish Pro League to the NHL, or from the Finnish Pro League 
to the KHL, Finnish Pro League, to the SHL. That's just an example I did for, for the Finnish Pro League, and I did that with every single league. And I was like, hmm, let's see which leagues are the strongest, which leagues are the weakest. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's in the order you'd think it is, but I found a few interesting things. So the KHL is the best, second best league in the world after the NHL, followed by the SHL and the Finnish Pro League. That all made sense to me. But the one thing I found really interesting is that the junior leagues in Sweden, Finland, and Russia are much more comparable to the OHL, the WHL, and the QMJHL than a lot of us tend to think. I think a lot of us tend to assume that if a player's playing junior in Sweden or if he's playing junior in Finland or junior in, uh, in, in Russia, that he's not that great of a prospect. Those guys tend to go you know, in the fifth, sixth, seventh rounds. But if you have a player who's absolutely destroying the super elite, which is the, the Swedish junior league, that's a player you should probably be taking in the second round, you know. And I, I think a great example this year is someone. I'm gonna I'm gonna botch the mispronunciation on this one because I, I that's my thing. But Albin Gru, Albin Greve, G R E W E, Albin Gru, let's call him, is someone who absolutely dominated the the Swedish junior league. If he dominated the OHL to that extent, he'd be going in the top fifteen. But because he did it in Sweden he might not even go in the first round. I think that's where a little bit of uh, European bias comes in, in that we don't scout Europe as heavily as we scout North America. And it makes sense. You know, the NHL is in North America. That's where most of your scouts probably are. But there's a lot of talent in Sweden. There's a lot of talent in Finland, a lot of talent in Russia, even other leagues like in, in Czech. And uh, I mean, we're, we're seeing a, a German dude's going to go in the first round this year. Uh, more, how do you pronounce it? You're, you're German. You can probably do the pronunciation better than me. The simple one is just more at cider. Oh, I thought it was going to be tricky. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talent in Europe these days. I think in the past we've seen, you know, North Americans really like filled up the first round. It's been a while since we had a Canadian go first overall. And I, th I think that's kind of the way things are trending is that Europe has a lot of talent. And the more we can scout it, the better, because in the past it's been a huge inefficiency. You know, European players, Swedish players. I was talking about the 51% rule. Someone like Nils Hoglander has a 51% chance of becoming an NHL player, yet he's not ranked in most people's top 15. So if you have a guy who can produce a little bit in a, in a Swedish pro league, in a Finnish pro league, or a Russian pro league, it's a guy you want to take a bet on. And if you have a guy who's dominating a junior league in, in one of those countries, again, I'd treat it the same way as a guy dominating the OHL or dominating the WHL. That's a player I want to take a bet on because it's a really good indicator of future success when you look at the numbers. Yeah, and I think that there's definitely um, something to be said there. Like we talked about how some things get overvalued. I think that we're coming to a point where numbers are starting to become more valuable because you just, as a scouting staff, you it's very difficult to explain how um, a player like Joe Pavelski went in the later rounds of the draft. Like, it just shouldn't happen anymore. A big one for me is Braden Point. Braden Point, I think, is an excellent one because he was dominant in junior. He had, like, I think a point and a half per game in the WHL. Went in the third round because he was small. And I feel like that's just something that shouldn't be happening anymore. Absolutely. Totally agree. Um, but having said that, now that we're talking about in terms of junior leagues, somebody asked us a while ago to talk about um, the underscouting in European junior leagues versus the CHL and the USHL. And... Every single team that I've talked to, and you could just go look at their scouting directory online, um, they generally have like 10 scouts in Canada and then like maybe four or five in Europe. And that's like including the professional scouts. So a lot of the scouts in 
Europe actually have to scout the professional leagues and the junior leagues, and Europe has a lot of hockey leagues. So the fact that you have pretty much double the scouts in North America that you do in Europe for both professional and junior is a huge inefficiency. And half the amount of games that you have to keep an eye on, whereas in Europe, you know, you might have one player who's playing on a Swedish pro league team, you have two players you want to keep an eye on that are playing on a junior league team, it's just... There's so many games you're going to want to see when you're in Europe and you have half the manpower that's that's really going to, you know, make you less efficient in your ability to get scouting reports done. Exactly, and I think that's why you're seeing a lot of um players who play in a league like the Allsvenskan or even like the Finnish league or um any of the junior leagues, they're sort of kind of not as heavily scouted just because teams don't have the manpower for whatever reason. Um, There is, with the abundance of video in North America, because basically every junior game you can get video for, and it's not even close to as accessible in Europe, I think there should arguably be more scouts in Europe because there's less video, whereas you could have four or five scouts on this side of the pond in North America watching video or going to the games type thing and they're seeing the players but look how many teams there are in Europe like that's a lot to be going to especially when you have to travel around Russia which is I don't know a huge country yeah and when you look at the inefficiencies in the drafts over the last couple years it's basically like Sweden is the big one and then you know junior leagues in Russia junior leagues in Finland guys who are playing in a pro league whether it's in Finland, whether it's in Czech Republic, whatever country you're in, if you're playing in a pro league at age 17 and you're just, even if you're just hanging your head above water, at age 17, that's a huge indicator of future success. You look at someone like, uh, let me think of some examples, uh, who, who's played in the Czech league uh, at a young age recently? Uh, Martin Kaut, I think. Yeah, Martin Kaut, Martin Nekash, those are guys you want to be drafting. You look at... Uh, Elias Pedersen was playing in the Alsvenskin at age uh, 17. Probably should have been the first overall pick. <laughs> in hindsight, yeah. Uh, at the time, I know a few people who'd, who'd actually watched a lot of Alsvenskin who said, don't be surprised if Pedersen ends up being the best player in this draft. And I had him third on my final rankings, and I, I wanted to put him higher, but I didn't have the courage to do it, and... That's the thing. If you can dominate a league that not many people are paying attention to, like the Alsvenskan or like the super elite, then yeah, you can find an inefficiency there. You can find someone who other teams probably aren't as high on as they should be. So for me, Europe is a big inefficiency. Smaller skilled players are still an inefficiency. And for me, defensemen with excellent edge work, but maybe not the flashy shot from the point. To me, those are the guys who are are still going uh, lower than they probably should. Yeah, and that's actually, um, you're talking about the inefficiency. That's how Nashville found Pekka Rene. They had a scout go to a game to watch him in warm-up because he wasn't playing. So you have some teams that are going to watch guys in warm-up or going to figure out if a guy isn't performing because he has asthma, and then you have other teams who have, like, three European scouts to cover nine or ten leagues. Like, it's just, it's a huge inefficiency, and I think that that's probably got to be where NHL teams look to expand their coverage because there's so much there and the development system is different there. I was talking to somebody for um, who does the Swedish Elite League 
and how they sort of develop their players. It's very similar to soccer where they come up through the academy, whereas here it's just like you're drafted in whatever, but you don't go through the same sort of um, development process and there's not as much focus on development in North America as there is in Europe when you're going through the academies. So that's another huge inefficiency, and I think that it, it's likely not going to change in North America, but that's definitely something that the Europeans do differently that I am a big fan of. So wrapping things up there on Europe and uh, North America, I think it basically comes down to the fact that Europe is underscouted relative to the amount of talent that's there, so we'd like to see teams spend more resources there. At least I would. If I was running a team, I'd be heavily scouting Europe and we talked about the importance of numbers in our ability to forecast future success. I'd be getting ev- all the pieces of information I could get on these leagues, whether it was shots, you know, scoring chances, passes to the slot, zone entries, zone exits, um, you know, shot attempts for, shot attempts against, literally anything you can measure, I'd want it for all of these leagues. And I feel like if you have the resources to make that happen, if you're a team like Toronto Maple Leafs, for example, who have the resources to get data on those leagues... I feel like more information is better, so I'd like to see that in the future. But that's enough about Europe. Let, let's get on to the mailbag. What, what are some questions people are asking us this week? Um, why do teams pass on players they should take in? And I we touched on a player earlier in the podcast that I'm sure will come up in this question. But I'll let you start off on this one. So I guess some of it comes down to the major biases in scouting, I think. Uh, there's a North American bias, I think. Uh, in that if two players are very similarly talented, but one played in London, Ontario, and one played in uh, a city you've never heard of in Sweden, you're probably going to pick the Ontario kid. So I think that's one factor. I think sometimes uh, teams fall in love with their guy, and then a player all of a sudden slips to them, and they still pick their guy because they hadn't really heavily scouted that player because they didn't think he'd be available at that point. And I think you should always draft the best player available. Um, what are some other ones? I mean, you know, the interview things is what we talked about, you know, character concerns with someone like Ryan Merkley. But I think at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to overvaluing size, um, maybe the, the European versus North American bias. Or maybe the player just had a really bad interview. I don't know. It's it's always hard for me to say because I'm not on the uh, I'm not on the inside here. I'm on the outside looking in. But whenever you see a player like Alex DeBrincat slip in a draft, and then you see some players go ahead of him, you're like, how the heck did that guy get drafted in the first round? Maybe a team just fell in love with him. Maybe they talked to coaches and they they just love his work ethic. It, it's always hard to know. But I mean. For me, I think it, at the end of the day, it probably comes down to character. That's my biggest guess. I'm curious as to what you think, having worked for an NHL team. Um, I think that you brought up the whole passing on guys. So I know how it works. It's like teams make their list. And obviously the list kind of adjusts itself. But teams will sit there with their master list. And as the player goes, they'll cross it off. And then when their pick's there, whoever is the highest rated player on their list available, they generally just take that player instead of actually, like, putting thought into it because they'll say, okay, like, we made our list and this is, like, where he he falls, so he's clearly the best player available. In our eyes, we're going to take him. Yeah, teams are dumb. Teams are always taking the best player they think is available. It's just whether or not, you know, you agree it's with actually, that assessment. Yeah. Right. Uh, character's a big one. Um, and I think that, to a degree, okay, I understand it, but also, these kids are, like, 17 and 18 years old, guys. Like, 
I wasn't proud of the person I was at 17, 18, even like 19. Um, and you could do a lot in terms of developing the, um, the player and the person. I talked about this on the Leafs on Deck podcast this week in terms of what the Leafs do. They're not just about developing players. They're about developing good people. And whether this kid is a quote-unquote bad apple, if you really want to put the effort in, he's still formable at the age of 18. Like, you could still work with that. So I know that a lot of teams actually have, like, a do-not-draft list, and they put teams on that, or they have a red flag list where it's like, we're not taking him unless he's available in, like, the fourth round, which, of course, a player of this skill level that we're arguing about is probably not going to be available in the fourth round. But even things like compete or effort level. Oh, he uh, he didn't track back on an empty netter, so therefore I don't like his effort level. Or he didn't show enough pride in his game. I can't even tell you like how many times I've heard that said. Like Whether it's um, behind closed doors or it's in the public eye on Twitter. Oh, I don't really like his compete. Or he doesn't play with enough passion. It's like, oh my god, guys. Like, everybody relax. When they're not a robot and they say things, you criticize them. And then um, when they kind of go off and show passion, you criticize them. So which one do you want? Do you want the robot or do you want the passion? And for me, um, that's sort of the main reason why teams pass on players they should take. And then you have the size factor, um, I think, is a huge one. We talked about it with Alex Dabrinkit and Braden Point and... um, the nationality biases with oh the Russian factor I mean I can't believe that still gets talked about but here we are and it still does so those are a couple of the the big reasons that um they pass on players they should take and and I think when you look at the biggest example, you look at someone like Boston, for example, the classic 2015 where the, the, they could have had oh God. Matt Barzell, Kyle Connor, and Thomas Shabbat were the next three picks after them. They went with um, Zaboral, DeBrusque, and Senation. DeBrusque is great. DeBrusque is a really good player. But um, Jacob Zaboral and Zachary Senation, they had a pick early in the second round. One of those guys would have been available. So I feel like you need to read the room and know which players are and aren't going to be available by your next pick because Matthew Barzell was obviously not going to be available by your next pick. Oh, absolutely not. You know, Kyle Connor, Tom Shabbat, obviously not going to be available by your next pick. So there's a bit of game theory to this. Jacob Zaboral is going to be there in the second round when you're picking. So let's not pick him now. Let's take Matthew Barzell now, and then we'll take Zaboral in the second round if we really like him, because that's a better fit. So I think you need to understand where players are projected to go and not reach for a player. Don't take a player a round or two before you should take him, because then there's the opportunity cost of not being able to get a Matt Barzell or a Thomas Shabbat when you would have been able to you know, really get a star player at that draft position. Yeah, and I think that... Um, there's also a case where it really comes down to how the scout feels. So let's say they're picking between a guy in Sweden and then a guy in the the U.S., right? So those scouts will talk, and obviously they're talking to the director of amateur scouting. And at the end of the day, um, it falls on the director of amateur scouting, so he's got veto power. Like, he can say, even though we have this guy ranked, like, three places higher, we're taking this guy because this is who I think, based on what I've heard, what I've seen... Um, this is what we're going with. So at the end of the day, there is veto power. I always assumed that the general manager or the president of hockey operations had that veto power. Oh, well, so here's the thing is they're not out scouting during the year. Like for the most part, they're with their team. Um, and 
it's it's rare. Like they're at all the big tournaments, so like the World Juniors or whatever. But like I said, that's when you're overvaluing international tournaments. Whereas see, your director of amateur scouting is very rarely actually in the city that your NHL team is in, because he's out in Russia and Europe and all over the U.S. and all over Canada and wherever the heck else there are players. I mean, I can't even imagine. I actually don't know a single head scout that isn't like elite status with an airline because that's how much they travel it's insane every time I talk to anyone who's traveling they're like or scouting sorry they're traveling somewhere whether it's Sweden or Germany or they're in Arizona or California or they're in Prince Albert like it's everywhere and so um you have to as a manager as a GM it's your job to be able to trust the people that you've hired and that's sort of where you've got to trust that your director of amateur scouting has seen both of these players or a bunch of these players and and is going to make the sound decision there. All right, so before we get out of here, last question for you. Who is an under-the-radar prospect that you love in this draft? So maybe not someone who's going to go in the top five or top ten, but a player that just you're really high on for, for a particular reason. Um... I'm really high on Cole Caulfield, but that might hey. not be like... I mean, we hope he goes in the top 10. We think he probably should based on his goal-scoring ability. But. I mean, there's a team who's drafting at 8 that should probably really look at him. A team with a, with a player who's one of the better playmakers in the world. I mean, they have two of the better playmakers in the world. Yeah. Uh, Edmonton. Um, I think one of the guys that could probably go in the later rounds, obviously, like you have the Cole Caulfield and Cam York who will go in the first round. I think that Montreal Canadiens maybe want to look at Cam York with their pick if he's not already gone. Um, I like Tobias Bjornfoot out of Sweden. And I watched him play, actually, like, all season. I saw him play in his league, and um, I was really impressed throughout the season. And then I thought he was really good for them at the U18s, um, just sort of in the culmination of his season. I like what he does. Um, I like how he separates guys from the puck. There are definitely, like, concerns, as there would be with any teenager who's kind of ranked in the later rounds, but I think he's got the talent. Um, he's definitely got the skating, um, but he sees the ice well. Like, he played in all situations for them, and for me, um, especially in the Swedish program, they're not sticking a letter on a jersey just to stick a letter on a jersey, and he, the fact that he wore the, the C for a few tournaments and um, his coaches spoke highly of him, for me like that's when you've got some tools and you've got that that shows me that you're gonna potentially have you're you potentially have what it takes to succeed at the national hockey league level i don't think he's gonna be like a top two defenseman but i could see him being a four five and he could play um on your pk um he can be out there kind of shutting down the secondary so maybe not the top line but maybe a team's second line that has some skill on it what about you I'm going to go with uh, another Swede because, uh, like I said, like it just tends to be one of the biggest inefficiencies. I feel like we don't realize people who produce in a Swedish Junior League or even a little bit in a Swedish Pro League just how much value that has. I'm going to go with Samuel Fagamo because he's an overager, but he should have been drafted last year. He absolutely should have been drafted last year. And had he been drafted for fun, let's say he was drafted in the fourth or fifth round last year, he's producing this year at the same rate that... Um, that Andreas Janssen was in his post-draft year, you know, or William Carlson was in his post-draft year. So he's the example of a player who, if you had drafted him 
And then this year, you're looking at his production, you're going, wow, we we hit that pick out of the park. You know, like that was a fourth or fifth round pick, but that was really a first or second round pick value. So I'd draft Sam Afagamo this year, the first or second round, because I feel like that's what value he's actually providing to you as an asset. Will he go that high? That's that's yet to be seen. It'll be interesting. But I think that based on his production, what he's done at the SHL level as an 18-year-old, I'm really impressed with his ability. I, I like the fact that he's not tiny. You know, he's five foot eleven. That's that's tall these days for you know for a skilled player. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, and same with uh, Brett Leeson. He's another guy that actually he might go late first round. But you look at, I think he was like a goal a game for the first three quarters of the season or something silly like that in the WHL this year. So that's another one where he's an overage player like uh, Sam Fagamo and and. Definitely warrants a pick this year, if not a relatively high one. I'm just curious because he's also really old. He's 20. I wonder how much of that is him beating up on younger competition because of his size and how much of that is him having, you know, true first or second round ability. That's always a tough one. Yeah, but I think like he did he play against younger players in the W? Yeah, he did. But I actually thought his performance at the World Juniors was pretty good as well. And that was sort of where I wanted to see because then he's playing against guys. It's a 19-year-old tournament, right? And so he's one of the older guys there. So I wanted to see how he would stack up there. And I actually thought he had a pretty good tournament. So for me, that was sort of my barometer as, okay, he's been really good this season, but I need to see him against the top competition at his age group. And the World Juniors provided that because there's a bunch of drafted players playing in that, right? When you think about it. So for me, I thought he, I think both of those guys definitely warrant a draft pick for sure. So you think for 17 and 18 year olds, the World Juniors can be a little bit overrated, but for a 19 year old, it can be a really good barometer for how good you're going to be? No, I said I used the entire season, but I wanted to see how he performed against people who were his age. And he performed well. Okay. All right. I was just making sure. I'm like, well, I don't know. I feel like you're like contradicting yourself a bit here. No, no, no. If he was terrible for the last half of the year and played well at the World Juniors, I would not have this opinion. But because he was good throughout the season and good at an international tournament, he was good everywhere he played. You know what I'm saying? There's a consistent he was good everywhere as opposed to he was only good in one place and not in the other. Yeah, you don't want to have like that Philip Broberg problem where earlier in the year he was really struggling. Then again, Philip Broberg, I will say that he had a much better second half to his season. That's what you want to see from younger players, so it'll be interesting to see where he goes. But before we nerd out on every single player in this draft, we should probably get out of here because we'll have plenty of time for more draft talk uh, You know, in the next month as we get really into uh, the nitty-gritty of the 2019 draft. But it's a lot of fun, Rachel. Do you have any uh, final words before we go? Any, any uh, positive takes on the Kawhi Leonard shot from Game 7? Oh my god, that was the greatest thing. Apart from watching Josie Altador score MLS Cup goal and him just like running towards me after that happened, that Kawhi Leonard shot was like mind-blowing. It's the greatest moment in the history of the franchise and it better be the damn mural outside of Scotiabank Arena because that was just, oh, it's just so iconic. Sticking out his uh, his blue Gatorade tongue as Kawhi actually showed emotion for the first time in his life. It was it was awesome. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it as, as a Raptors fan. But Oh, man, I was so jacked. I couldn't even sleep. All right, we'll get out of here. This isn't the Raptors podcast, but uh, I'm so excited heading into the, the you know Eastern Conference Finals against the Bucs. I'm a huge Raptors fan, and that's what I've been watching a lot of lately. I'm trying to take a bit of a break from hockey. Not altogether, but... 
I feel like at this point in the season, I've just I'm getting a little bit burnt out, so I'm I'm taking a bit of a break from hockey and focusing more on the Raptors. It's helped me f- from a mental health perspective, and that's important. So it's Pascal Siakam and Kawhi Leonard are good for your mental health. So make sure you watch lots of them. All right, we're getting out of here. Thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, me and Rachel will be back next week. Sounds good. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff. <laughs>